started the, the message with, with a handful of questions, and I was thinking, you know, this could really go one of two ways with, uh, with these questions. It could really be incredibly uncomfortable and awkward, or this could really set the stage kind of for where we're going with, with the message, and uh, the latter happened, and it was, it was unbelievable. The, when we asked this question, um, the Thursday night crowd, we kind of talked back and forth to each other in, in here, and it's uh, very, very laid back, very casual. And just something happened on Thursday night. It just seemed like that the presence of God was here. And I think I believe it was because when we asked these questions, the the individuals were, "Oh, that's me, Pastor. Hey, that's oh, that's me over here. Well, that one's not me." And it was just very interesting uh, to see. So I thought maybe we'll do that again Sunday morning, and uh, and we'll see how it goes. And then something very similar happened upstairs. So I'm gonna I'm gonna now bring these questions to you, and uh, and and they're not questions meant to shame any anyone. Not they shouldn't hurt your feelings. But they are, they are questions where if we could be honest, if we could be bold and just say, hey, that's, that's me, um, there'll be a lot more freedom from those of us in the room who are watching. Pat, I'm not the only person that has had these thoughts. I'm not the only person that has gone through this. And again, they're not heavy-handed questions. I'll just start with, uh, with, with some easy ones, but then we'll kind of drift into some more. Again, your, your participation will be greatly appreciated by those in the room. Uh, so for how many of us, how many of for you, this is your home church? Jasmine First is your home church. You can raise them high. You certainly shouldn't be ashamed of that question, right? So how many of you, this is our, okay. So how many of you uh, are not from Alabama? You were not born in Alabama. Anybody not born here? All right, good deal. So we're, in the, we're definitely going to heaven. Anybody here born in Florida? Anybody? Right, for sure, we're going to heaven. I was born in Florida, so we're, we're on the same page with that one. All right, how many of you grew up in a Christian home? Okay. I didn't think I was going to take a look on you all. All right. How many of you did not grow up in a Christian home? Okay, there's a few of us. How many of you, for those who grew up in a Christian home, how many of you had a season, maybe it was a week, maybe it was a couple months, maybe it was a year, maybe it was a college year, a young adult year, whichever, but you grew up in a Christian home, but then you had a season of your life where you kind of abstained from church, you didn't, you didn't go to church, you, you, you kind of drifted away just a little bit from Christianity or the church altogether. Any, anybody? Okay, I'll look around. Those of you who have your hand, look around. You can keep them up. And, all right, so again, so you shouldn't feel ashamed. Like, well, I had this thing back in my past. S- several of us have said, hey, you know what? I grew up in a Christian home. However, there was a season where I was just kind of over being around Christian people. I was just kind of over church. I just didn't go for whatever reason. Okay, how many of you were saved after your 20th birthday? After your 20th birthday? Okay. How many of you were saved as little children? That, that, that question was for free. That wasn't problematic. I was just interested to see. Right, how many of you were saved at a church service or an, a retreat or an Emmaus walk? How many of you were saved at a church service? Okay. How many of you were saved not at a church service? Maybe it was your bedroom or a restaurant. I love the stories of somebody who's saved at a bar, by the way. Those are, those are real interesting. I've, I've heard some. But like those are, I, I like those kind of stories, those testimonies. Well, good. How many of you have a past that is just, we're not getting into detail, but you have a past that is not as squeaky clean as maybe people might think it is? All right, notice my, hey, my hand's up on this one, not trying to encourage you, but I'm there, okay? How many of you have something from your past that, that borderline haunts you? So you can have a season of it being fine, but then all of a sudden this memory of a decision or memory of a day or memory of something happened can rear its ugly head, and now you start thinking, oh, man, I hate that that's there. Anybody? Something from your past. Okay, again, look around the room. It should be freeing that I'm not the only person that has something that took place in my life that, that I still carry the weight of that thing with me. 
that's good. The answers to these questions would certainly reveal the diversity of experience amongst the members of this church. And if you're a visitor here, even you need to be included in that. Certainly diversity of past experiences in this room. Some have been in church all their life. Some are new Christians. Some were saved at an early age. Some were saved after their 20th birthday. Some have never touched a cigarette. Some have abused drugs. Some saved themselves for marriage. Some, simply put, didn't. Some have multiple degrees. You have a master's or a PhD, your doctorate, maybe even a couple of masters. I know some people, there's one person I know has 11 degrees. 11 degrees. And some never finished high school. And some have great wealth. And some live financially week to week and so on and so on. But here's my point with all this. Is there seems to be this kind of myth in, in Christian circles that there is a type of person God desires to save. So what God wants is the person that's nice and neat, comes from a godly home, can understand Greek and Hebrew by the time they're five. They've never said a cuss word. Like they don't even drink coffee. They don't want caffeine. Like just that's the type of person that God wants and that God will really use that person. But not me because I've had coffee. I've said a cuss word. I've done things, said things, seen things I shouldn't have. So God has yes and amen to God wanting to use that person, but God doesn't desire me because of the baggage that I bring, and I still can't get over what I've done in my past. And so, yes, and amen, God's grace and mercy with this person, but just not for me. And so there's this myth that there's a type of person that God desires to save, God desires to claim, God desires to use, and it is certainly a myth. So I want to share with you just from, from familiar passages this morning, four types of individuals that God has no problem calling his own. Okay, and we see this with the wayward the self-righteous, the uninterested, and the religious. Four types of people God says, hey, get in here. You are mine. I'll be your God. You'll be my child. So we'll look at that. I want to pray first, and then we'll, we'll go into the text. Lord, thank you for this day. God, I thank you that there is not a certain type of person that you, that you save. God, that you save all kinds. That means there's hope for me, and there's hope for those in this room. God, I thank you that you have saved us, you are saving us, and God, I thank you that you will continue to save us, continue to reveal yourself to us. God, would you speak now and move me out of the way? Father, would you fill me with so much love that when I speak, your children will simply hear from you? I pray I'll go as far as you allow me to go and no further. Would you give me the discernment to know when to press in and the discernment to know when to relinquish? I pray above all things you're glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, we'll take a look at the wayward. This will be from Luke 7. 36 through 50, you're welcome to turn there. I'm not going to read a ton. It'll be, it'll be scripture heavy, but I'm actually not going to read a ton this week. But I want to share with you a couple and kind of compress a couple of stories. And again, most of these you should be, if not all of them, you should be familiar with. But Luke 7, 36 through 50, this is the story of Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman. Again, quickly, you're most likely familiar with the story. This is when Peter the Pharisee invites Jesus into his home. And Jesus is reclining at the table. The table might have been a table that's about two feet kind of off the ground, so you're leaning on your elbow, your feet up. And, and then this sinful woman, that's all we know, that this woman was sinful. So you can insert your sin and attribute that to her lifestyle. All we know is that she's a sinful woman. We don't know what the sin is, but that's her reputation. So think about it. How would you like for that to be your reputation? All right, so as Luke is writing this, what if he was writing this to people who, who knew exactly who he was talking about? Let me tell you, you know that sinful woman in the community? Well, this was her that came to town that night. 
I mean, if we said that, hey, you know the church gossip? I mean, we might start thinking about it. Oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Hey, you know that person that's in everybody's business? And we go, oh, yeah, I know. Well, this is, this is what's taking place here. That sinful woman, she came into the room, and she sees Jesus, and, and she begins to then throw herself at, at his feet, cries on his feet, and dries his feet with her hair, and kisses his feet, and is anointing his feet, to the point where Simon the Pharisee says to himself, if this man really were a prophet, then he would know exactly what kind of woman this is. He would know she was a sinner if, uh, if he really were a prophet. And I love that Jesus doesn't, doesn't let that go. He engages that. He says, Simon, I have something I want to tell you. There was a, a money lender who, owned, who, who gave 550, 500 denarii to one and 50 denarii to another man, and, and, but neither men could pay the money back when it came time to pay it back. And so the money lender just canceled both debts. Which one of these two men do you think will love the, the money lender most? Of course, Simon the Pharisee says, well, the one who had the greater debt canceled. And he said, well, you, you've answered correctly. But then I love this part. Then he says, do you see this woman? Do you see her? What I hear asking that is, are you aware of what's taking place? Do you even see what's going on? Do you understand what is about to happen? Do you see, do you see this woman? When I came into your home, you didn't greet me with a kiss. This woman hasn't stopped kissing since she came in. You didn't wash my feet when I came in here to your home. This woman washed, her, washed, uh, washed my feet with her, her tears. And you didn't dry my feet, and she's doing that with her hair. Uh, you didn't anoint me, and this woman has. Do you see this woman? Are you aware of what's taking place? And then he says to this woman, again, this sinful, wayward individual, he says, your sins are forgiven. Rise and go, and, and go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And I love that line, go in peace. Like not get out of here. No, it's your sins are forgiven. Now as you go, as you leave here, have peace with what just happened. Have peace that your sins are forgiven. How many of us, that thing from our past, we can have seasons of peace, and then as soon as we remember that, we, that something took place in our lives that we're maybe even now even a little bit ashamed of, we don't, it, it takes away our peace before the Lord. And we then sometimes can even start doubting, I wonder if God will cover that. I feel like I need to still repent from something that took place when I was 13. I feel like I still need to repent from something that took place when I was 40, and now here I am 70. Do I still have to repent, or can I just trust that God's grace is going to cover that? Because I've already thrown myself at his feet, and he has said to me and declared of me, your sins are forgiven. So this is Jesus' response to a wayward, sinful individual. We see in Luke 15, just a couple pages over, the parable of the prodigal son, and I've heard, the, and I've heard well, the prodigal son wasn't just the younger son, it was also the older son, and yes and amen, that, that certainly can, can, can be right, is right as well. I've also heard it shouldn't be the parable of the prodigal son, but more so the parable of the father's love. I've heard that, and I have no problem with that, for sure. But I do want to focus on this story kind of quickly, then get to the, the older son's response. But you know the story, it's a young boy who says to his father, hey father, give me my share of the inheritance. Well, in order for that to happen, the father traditionally would have had to die. So the son is saying, you know, I wish you weren't even here. I wish I had what was due me already. I wish I could go ahead and get my inheritance. And if you weren't alive, I could have that inheritance. And so the father says, well, here's your inheritance. And then we learn that, that the, uh, the young man goes and squanders his life and squanders in the inheritance with wild living and prostitution and drunkenness and debauchery. And one day he's eating pig slop and he comes to his senses and he says, you know, my, my, my father's hired men and eat better than this. They have it better than what I'm doing. So I know what I'll do. I'll go and I'll, 
Say, I'm sorry to my father, and I'll tell him, hey, but against you and heaven only have I sinned. Will you take me back? He says, that's what I'll do. So he comes to, and on his way back, father sees him, long way off, races out to him, embraces him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his, on his finger, kills the fattened calf, says, we're going to celebrate. Let's throw a party for my son. And then let's look at the older brother's response. So here's the older brother's response from 28, uh, Luke 15, 28 through 30. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Go in where? Well, go into the celebration. Again, they're having thick cut filet mignon. I'm talking medium rare. They brought out the good wine for this for this case. You got the band cranked up. There's there's a celebration taking place because of this young son coming home. The father's thrilled and embracing his son. Let's get everybody. Everybody needs to know my son has come home. And then the oldest son, older brother, refuses to go in and he's angry. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My my posture towards the self-righteous and towards the brother, this is not God's posture, my posture, because I'm not perfect yet, my posture simply would have been, I don't know if you're aware of what's taking place, but my son, a son of mine, your brother, has just come home. Right? He's repented. He's come home. I'm going to celebrate. And my son's coming home. Now, if you want a goat and you want to take your friends and y'all want to go kill the goat and, and, and watch the game, whatever you want to do, if you're going to sit out here and pout, then just sit out here and pout. If you want some goat and you think that'll make you happy, then just go pout. But we're going to celebrate in here. So you take your bad attitude and go sit over there. That's fine. That would be my, my posture because I'm not God, right? Because I, and I see in this, it's almost like it's such an anger. Why are you pouting? And yet, that's not, the, that's not the father's response, is it? The father's response is, listen, you have always been with me. And everything I have is yours. And I, I acknowledge, I see your faithfulness to me. And you belong in here as well. Get in here. But how often do we find ourselves more as the older brother, and here we are beating our chest. And I've been slaving away for you, God, for years. And this person over here, they're living a, 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 a wayward life. And their being wayward must mean that I'm clean. And if you have a problem with one of us, surely it's them, because I'm not doing this. My reputation is not that of a wayward individual. My reputation isn't that of a sinner. So here we go, we're going to beat our chest. And I've been with you, Lord. I've been saved since I was a small child. And it's as if God wouldn't deal with you the way I would want to deal with you and me. But rather, God would say to you and of me, hey, get in here. Thank you for your uh, perseverance and your faithfulness to me. You belong in here. Get in here, too. So the invitation for the self-righteous seems to be the same invitation to the wayward. Hey, get in here. Let me celebrate you. Not necessarily your sin. Let me celebrate you. Get in here. This is for you as well. Then we see in Acts 9, you see Saul, who before he's Paul, his name is Saul, and he was the, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He was the family line of, of Benjamin. He grew up in Jerusalem and studied Jewish traditions, becoming extremely, uh, an extremely zealous Pharisee. In fact, Saul was, would give the thumbs up to have Christians who were brought before him killed. So incredibly dedicated to his education, incredibly dedicated to what his forefathers believed, so much so that, that now people are worshiping God, but through Jesus, he would have them killed. And we focused on that about two weeks ago from Acts 19. 
And he was so zealous for the traditions of his fathers that he would have you killed if you followed the way, if you followed Jesus. And Paul says of himself, Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So here's what we know about Paul. Paul has really us beat in all regard. So despite our waywardness and our sin, nobody in this room was given the thumbs up to have dozens of Christians murdered. None of us in this room have done that. And so Paul would say, if you think you're going to boast about how sinful you are, your sin is JV compared to my sin. So if God can use me and forgive me of carrying out murderous threats against his children, surely God has your lying tongue or your little jaunt into lust. Surely God has your quick temper. Surely he can control that. If he can do this with me, a murderer, certainly God can work on you with whatever it is you wrestle with. And certainly the atoning work can cover that every bit as much as it covered my sin. But then Paul, so Paul would make that boast about his flesh, but he's also going to make the boast over here. As, as intelligent and as, as, as smart as you think you are, I promise you I have more Christian education, more godly education than you. So much so that I, I would dare say I'm faultless and flawless in regards to being a Pharisee. So you're not going to boast before Paul about how bad you are, and you're also not going to throw out some degrees in front of him, because Paul's going to have that beat. So what boast would we make even before before Paul, and yet, when Paul was on his way to Damascus to breed out even more murderous threats, completely not interested in Jesus, what happens? Jesus reveals himself to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Saul was persecuting the church. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't separate the two. What Jesus is implying here is, you're coming after the church, you might as well be coming after me. These are my people. Why are you persecuting me? So Saul completely uninterested in Jesus Christ, was saved by Jesus Christ on that day. So again, God's response to the wayward, God's response to the self-righteous, and now God's response to the uninterested should give us a lot of hope. Here's why that gives me hope with with Saul's salvation. I've said this a couple times, that I, I have family members who want nothing to do with Jesus. They really want nothing to do with God, some of them. Others, they love an idea of God that we, we all will get in eternity, whatever it is we want in eternity, if we could just be good. Some of them have no problem with, there's, there is a God, but we can't know Him, kind of the agnostic side of things. But Jesus now, they hate, and Jesus trips them up. And it's really difficult to even have any kind of conversation, or even to, to listen to them, because Jesus is just going to interrupt for them, as He said He would do. And so my prayer is, well, God, you've done this in your scripture. Just save them. Reveal yourself to them. Just reveal yourself to them. Even if it's, dare I say, against their will to be saved, Lord, would you do that? Would you save them? And people I know and have loved dearly, who passed away, who I never heard profess Jesus as Lord, my hope is, you know, God, would you hope and pray that you had mercy when they stood before you? And that somehow you would still welcome them. Now, I don't know. I don't know if, if that's going to happen or not. But maybe something took place that I was not aware of in that individual's life that I can then hold out hope that maybe God did save him inside. But if God has saved Paul against his will to be saved, then I'm going to continue to pray that for those I love who want nothing to do with God, who want nothing to do with Jesus. That would be my prayer for them.
we see with with Paul that he'd be kind of the uh, he'd be a little bit of a hybrid between the uninterested and the religious. So we'll focus on just two more religious individuals. In John three, we see that Jesus teaches Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit and what does it mean to be born again. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, so he's an elite spiritual leader. In John seven. Nicodemus defends Jesus' actions and ministry in front of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, they don't like Jesus because he's a threat to, to what they believe. And Nicodemus, a member of this, of this group, he's now in John 3 has a conversation with Jesus. In John 7, we see that he's now defending the ministry and the actions of Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And then finally in John 19, we see that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes to prepare for Jesus' prepared Jesus' body for burial. So what took place in a religious person's life, even a religious person who has an encounter with Jesus, can be saved out of their religiousness. And that's a good thing. Again, that gives me hope as well. We see in Acts 16, a woman by the name of Lydia, she's in Philippi. And what we know of Lydia is she was uh, she worked with purple linen, purple cloth. And so to do that, uh, you'd have to be somewhat wealthy, but also you're going to, uh, to, to sell to a specific tax bracket, okay? So you, you have a clientele that has some cash, and you yourself have some cash. And so Lydia, hear me, not poor. Lydia's doing very well for herself. And what tradition tells us, and, and, and philosophers and scholars, theologians smarter than me, that she, that she taught not necessarily the Bible, because the Bible didn't quite exist then, but, but the Old Testament, she taught Scripture. So she would have these little, for lack of a better word, Bible studies with, with women in the community. And so on this day, it's a Sabbath day in Acts 16, 11 through, through 15. It's a Sabbath day, and Paul is passing through Philippi, and he sees Lydia, and she's, she's a worshiper of God, is what, is what the book says. She's, she's a worshiper of God. She's having these conversations with some women who were gathered there. And then Paul just simply says, hey, can I have a moment of your time? Can I tell you about the Holy Spirit? Do you mind if I tell you about this God that you're believing in? And then Luke writes that her heart is opened to Paul's message. Again, she's a worshiper of God. Why wasn't her heart opened previously? Or maybe she hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. So she hears Paul's gospel filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but her whole household is filled with the Holy Spirit and then baptized. Think about this, a teacher of the word of God is then saved at Bible study. Like how incredible would it be if on Wednesday nights at Sunday school and at our church, how incredible if somebody came to know the Lord for the first time in a small group. When's the last time that's happened? Not here, but at any church. When was the last time you were being taught by a Sunday school teacher, a Wednesday night teacher, and then they told you, hey, guys, you won't believe this. I think I caught the Holy Spirit last week. You're like, oh, my goodness, like, you're 50. I thought you had already had it. Like, what, if, what if somebody said, hey, I've been teaching this my whole life, and only now did something happen, and God just saved me out of, I'm a religious person, and God saved me out of religion. He saved me out of this works-based behavioral modification that I would just call religion. He saved me out of that. Praise God. Why would God do this? Why would God save the wayward self-righteous, the uninterested? Why would God save the, the religious? What, what is he doing? Ultimately, what is he, what is he doing with this? A couple of verses, I'll go quickly through these. But God is claiming and making a people for his namesake. In Leviticus 26, 12, 
God says, I'll walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 32, 38, they will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Hosea 2, 23, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And finally, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, again, some of us were saved. The darkness we were saved out of was waywardness. It was a life of drug, sex, and rock and roll. That's what God saved us out of, a life of just not wanting anything to do with him, a life of debauchery, of just a life of sin. And God, in his, in his mercy, saved us out of that in his grace. For some of us, the darkness God saved us out of and continues to save us out of is this self-righteous, beat my chest, I'm cleaner than other people. I'm more disciplined than other people. And so where's mine? Where's my inheritance? Because I'm more disciplined than you are. And praise God that he continues to save us out of that. And when we find ourselves in this self-righteousness, praise God that he'll humble us. The darkness is for some of us that God saved us out of is just simply not being interested in that. And praise God that even today when we can have seasons of, I just don't really feel like reading. I haven't read in three months, and I'm just, I'm kind of fine with that. Praise God that he won't let us not be uninterested in that. And then finally, for, for some, you know, God continues to save us out of religion. This empty singing to him, this empty listening to a message that God saves us out of that. So praise God for that. Finish with this verse. God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God for that. And that's a good thing. The songs, the, the hymns that we, I was hoping we would sing this morning, uh, two of them pretty much were the same lyrically, different melodies, uh, but the same lyrically. As we'll close with, uh, with hymn 99, my tribute. But when we sing this, we'll sing this twice. It's a, it's a short uh, verse. We'll sing it twice. But I want you to focus intently on the verses uh, and the words that, that, that we sing. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood he saved me. With his power he raised me. To God be the glory for, for the things he has done. And so how, which one do you find yourself kind of drifting back into? Is it the more the wayward lifestyle? Is it a self-righteous lifestyle that God has to keep saving you from? Does God continue to save you from not being interested in Him? Or does God save us out of this religious, I, church is just something I simply do, and my heart isn't stirred for affection for Jesus, it's just something that I partake in. May God be merciful once more this morning to us, and convict us of that, and encourage us to continue to walk with Him. And we praise God that He has washed us and saved us by the blood of His Son. Let's pray. Lord, we love You, help us to love You more. Yes, God, truly to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.